with your weekly update of all mental health related news, including items about the mind, the brain, interesting things about human behavior, how to feel better emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and trying to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments for it. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Uh, all that delivered to you with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And this edition of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded, first to be aired on America's Web Radio on Wednesday evening, February the 25th, 2015. It's been a lot of cold weather in different places around the country lately, including some pretty uncharacteristically chilly weather here in Georgia, even for the wintertime. Hope you've been surviving the weather wherever you're listening from. And also, hope you're noticing the days are already getting longer and just uh, less than two weeks from now when we turn the clocks ahead and we go back to daylight savings time. And that's going to help all of you who have seasonal affective disorder symptoms. But even those of us who don't have seasonal affective disorder feel better with the longer days and more sunshine, don't we? Of course. All right, well, leading off tonight's show, uh, again, even though it may not be politically correct for me to rail against the trend of uh, marijuana smoking becoming legalized in certain jurisdictions and uh, laws about medical marijuana being liberalized, and I do use that word intentionally, quite a bit in different places. I found this article about psychosis being five times more likely for cannabis users. Now, so yes, I am going to keep talking about this. Uh, I think someone needs to keep talking about the dangers and risks associated with marijuana smoking, because certainly uh, in uh, these state legislatures, such as Colorado and Washington, and there may be more coming down the road, who are allowing uh, legalization or at least decriminalization of uh, personal use and possession of small amounts, they need to know what the health consequences are going to be. And so, too, do other jurisdictions that are considering adopting similar laws. This was a British study that was uh, released within the last couple of weeks. It suggested that the risk of psychosis was five times higher for regular users, users of cannabis. Now, again, we're talking about this study was regular users, not just infrequent, occasional, casual users. But uh, it adds to a growing body of evidence linking drug use and mental health disorders. It was a six-year study. So looking at these people 
uh, what's called in medical research longitudinally, in other words, over a long period of time, you get much more accurate information if you're taking that long a snapshot in time. And it was published in the medical journal The Lancet. It reported on 780 people living in South London, 410 of whom were being treated for conditions including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. The uh, authors warned about the growing use of something called skunk, a powerful type of cannabis. You've probably heard of skunk weed. Uh, but compared with those who had never tried cannabis of any type, users of this high-potency skunk cannabis had a threefold increase in risk of psychosis. All right, so again, we're talking about not just infrequent, casual users. Well, we're, we're talking about regular users, and we're not talking about just ordinary weed. We're talking about this high-potency type of cannabis. The risk to those who use this stuff every day was very high, a five-fold increase of risk of psychosis compared to those who never use it. Uh, and psychosis certainly is a tremendous mental health problem with symptoms including hallucinations and delusions. Uh, this is extremely disabling and societal costs are tremendous. Uh, people with this usually wind up with disability and cannot uh, be supported outside of public assistance. Now, in England, about one new case of psychosis is diagnosed for every 2,000 people every year. Uh, the study was based on 410 patients who reported psychosis between 2005 and 2011. And the point that researchers are making is that if this could be prevented, almost a quarter of the cases of psychosis would be stopped if they could get people not to use this high-potency cannabis. Uh, so they took a comparison group to contrast with the 410 patients uh, of 370 healthy participants, in other words, with no mental health problems. And they also were very careful to have doctors uh, take the results of the study and realize, look, you need to ask about drug use, you need to ask what drugs they're using and how often. This is just one of several reports over recent years that have pointed to a link between cannabis use and psychosis. This is by no means any kind of groundbreaking finding or a major revelation. This is a well-known association. Uh, just to name one other study, back in 2010, a survey of 3,800 young adults in Australia found an increased risk of psychosis for those who started smoking cannabis at an early age and used it for several years. Uh, so in that study, they specifically were looking at the impact on mental health when people start using it early, uh, when the brain may not be f completely finished uh, growing and developing. Nearly 
of adults around the world use cannabis, according to a different paper in The Lancet from 2009, which at the time cited figures from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Uh, I think it's fair to say that that percentage is probably higher. Here we are uh, now six years later from that point. Well, again, with the caveats that this was regular use and it was high-potency marijuana, uh, I certainly still think that this type of information has to be considered uh, in terms of the public health impact when state legislatures are, are looking at uh, decriminalization and legalization of marijuana, uh, there are going to have to be serious consequences, uh, unfortunately, for people who have um, been in states that have approved this idea to get them to overturn it, if they ever will at all. Uh, but I certainly think it is not safe or appropriate to allow any sort of legal use of a hallucinogen that can purposely uh, induce a psychotic state uh, while the user is under the influence and perhaps have that turn into a permanent state of psychosis if that person is uniquely vulnerable to it. Next up on tonight's show, there is often a connection between physical illness and symptoms that are common to many mental illnesses, but while there certainly is overlap, unfortunately the, the idea that there are physical illnesses that can uh, present with psychiatric symptoms is often used for people to deny that they have a psychiatric problem or to further self-stigmatize themselves against saying, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with me mentally. It's, it's really just a physical problem. And so that's one part of the issue in terms of the overlap between mental and physical illness. But nonetheless, I came across this article that talks about how there are certain uh, physical diseases where you might only start having psychiatric or psychological symptoms. And if a doctor isn't thorough or careful, then they might naturally assume that it was purely a psychiatric illness and miss the underlying physical illness, which would then go not diagnosed and not treated. So therefore, I think it's important to talk about those cases where just showing up with psychological or psychiatric symptoms alone may indicate there's a physical problem and what to do about making sure that doesn't get missed. When it comes to your health, mind over matter may not be so much of a thing as mind and then matter. Uh, it's an article in the January 2015 edition of a journal called Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics. A group of Italian researchers explored whether depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric mood disorders might be early symptoms of medical disorders as opposed to being just psychological symptoms, as if to minimize those. Now, their research showed that depression in particular can be a strong indicator 
of other forms of illness, finding it to be the most common affective prodrome, or that means early symptom, of medical disorders. So again, they're saying depression is the most common form of early symptoms of medical disorders. And there's a long list of medical problems that could show up initially just with depression. Uh, but let's take our first commercial break right here. We'll get back into this topic right after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Latest mental health updates from your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And we're talking about how depression and or anxiety can be an early symptom of medical illness. Now, <clears throat> depression is the first symptom commonly reported in such diseases as Cushing's syndrome, hypothyroidism, hyperparathyroidism, pancreatic and lung cancer, heart attack, Wilson's disease, and AIDS. Now, it's uh, of note to me that 
several of those, <clears throat> notably Cushing's hypothyroidism and hyperparathyroidism, all are due to hormonal abnormalities or glandular abnormalities of one type or another. And uh, we know that there are a lot of hormonal imbalances in states of depression. But here's the irony. Many physicians are quick to dismiss symptoms like anxiety and depression, referring patients exhibiting signs of mood disorders to psychotherapists and psychiatrists for treatment instead of recognizing mood disorders as potential indicators of more serious physical conditions. Unfortunately, the view that mental symptoms and physical symptoms represent different domains is an ancient relic that survives, defying both science and common sense. Many physicians choose to ignore cognitive and affective symptoms, in part because their pursuit often requires additional time, which they don't have, and because of the mistaken belief that behavior is something other than a product of brain activity. The main information processing systems of the body, the endocrine, central nervous, and immune systems, are in constant communication to inform the body about the internal and external environments. So a disturbance in one system often manifests itself in disturbances in one of the other systems. As such, the appearance of central nervous system symptoms as a manifestation of physical illness is old news and again a matter of common sense. We don't understand why the symptoms appear in some individuals and not others, but that variability is part and parcel of medical illness. Not every patient who has a medical problem experiences it the same way. It's crucial to remember that our minds and bodies are intimately connected. We think of the brain as the organ that does our thinking, but the purpose of the brain is to control the body. So physical problems can influence mental states, and mental problems can lead to bodily problems. When you are sick, your body is trying to fight off a disease. That takes energy, and one natural response to that is to be tired. In addition, illness creates an undesirable state, which can engage the motivational system to enter an avoidance mode, which can lead to anxiety. Because we are often unaware of the sources of our motivations, we may attribute that anxiety to something in the environment, rather than something internal. Mood symptoms due to a medical illness tend not to fully respond to antidepressant drugs, even when properly administered, but rather to the proper treatment of the underlying medical disorder. Indeed, many patients dismissed as suffering from a mood or anxiety disorder with an adequate follow-up may later present with a medical illness responsible at least in part for it. Well, what does this mean? Am I saying that if you have depression or anxiety, you should be worried about a serious illness, including cancer? 
Probably not. If your mood disorder is long-term, it's a diagnosed condition, and your treatment is working, you don't have much to worry about. But if your psychiatric treatments are not working, or if you're newly experiencing these conditions, tell your doctor. <clears throat> Early psychiatric symptoms preceding a diagnosis of cancer are relatively rare. It is usually and understandably the case that psychiatric illness like depression follows a diagnosis of cancer as people grapple with their cancer, its treatment, and the uncertainty regarding their eventual outcome. Very few patients with a psychiatric illness will have a brain tumor or other systemic cancer. At any given moment, roughly 10% of the adult population is dealing with anxiety and depression. The incidence of these other diseases is much lower, so most cases of anxiety and depression have other causes. But patients undergoing psychological or psychiatric treatment should also receive regular physicals as part of their treatment plan to potentially catch any other medical issues that may underlie their mental symptoms. <clears throat> the important takeaway from this, folks, is that the mind and the body are not separate things. The mind, uh, subsumed by the, how the brain functions and allows us to think and feel, is part of the body. And therefore, it affects physical processes and vice versa. Now, <clears throat> many of you may have experienced uh, going to your primary care physician, reporting anxiety and depression, and the doctor ordering some blood work. You may conclude that this means there is some laboratory evidence the doctor is looking for of depression or anxiety. Unfortunately, that is not the case. As yet, we're not able to make a diagnosis of anxiety or depression by laboratory testing. We would love to be able to do that, but at the moment, that's still unfortunately science fiction. Uh, there are ways of doing this via brain imaging, but it's not your normal CT scan or MRI. It's only done at highly specialized research-oriented centers, uh, considered experimental, extremely expensive, and as you probably have already guessed, not covered by health insurance. Now, the reason the doctor is doing the blood work is to see if there are physical illnesses going on that could be responsible for the symptoms, like the ones that we talked about. Endocrine abnormalities like Cushing's or hypothyroid or hyperparathyroid. Um, <clears throat> there are signs that would show up on a routine set of laboratory studies that are done during an annual physical that could give the doctor clues that something else is wrong. And if they see abnormalities on those initial batch of tests, then they might want to order you know, more specialized or specific follow-up tests to further investigate the possibility 
of one of those illnesses. And then, of course, through a thorough physical exam, the doctor could pick up if there might be other problems. Uh, but really, so the purpose of the testing done during the physical when someone complains of those issues is to look for one of these physical disorders to see if that could be the reason why someone is anxious and depressed. If all the, those tests come back negative, then a uh, diagnosis of simple anxiety or depression by itself, not secondary to any other medical problem, can be made and treatment can be initiated with greater confidence. All right, well, next up on psychiatry today. Are there a lot of people listening to the show who suffer from nightmares? Or maybe someone close to you does? Well, then you or they want to listen up to this next item because it has to do with the surprising cause of your nightmares and how to make them stop. That's right, there are techniques that you can use that are fairly simple and uh, they can alleviate your frequent and or recurring nightmares. Uh, but first the article gives uh, a little information about nightmares uh, which are sometimes signs of mental health issues but not always. Nightmares can be a symptom of a mental health issue such as post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. But <clears throat> there's a, also a difference between true nightmares and stress dreams, which are probably more common. Stress dreams are exactly what they sound like. They are stressful dreams that tend to reflect real-life stressors. And they can make your sleep uh, very restless and disrupted and uh, therefore non-refreshing and non-restorative uh, because they they tend to be active dreams and uh, you just don't feel like you've woken up refreshed or that you've rested. <clears throat> Commonly people report in such dreams that they're trying to run but only being able to move in slow motion or not being able to move at all that might be representative of what's going on with the body during the sleep cycle when most dreams occur called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. REM sleep doesn't allow for great movement so that you don't act out your dreams. Your brain reads that in a dream as difficulty walking or moving. Now nightmares as opposed to stress dreams tend to be more frightening they usually have an element of non-reality. They also tend to be far more common in children than adults, as kids scare more easily. We also know that a tremendous amount of our military suffer from nightmares. Uh, they have life-threatening situations, abuse, anxiety disorders, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, all of which can lead to nightmares. Some experts believe that the intense, recurring, scary dreams are the brain's way of dealing with stress or struggling with trauma. Research suggests that up to 90% of people with post-traumatic stress disorder experience nightmares that resemble their traumatic experience 
in some way. All right, now, <clears throat> when we come back from this next commercial break, we'll get into what some of the specific causes of nightmares might be and ways to stop them. Be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. <clears throat> Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with all the latest mental health-related updates. We're talking about nightmares. Now, we're going to discuss some potential causes of them and ways to get them to stop. Even people without mental health conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder can report nightmares, often for no reason at all. But sometimes an unsuspecting culprit can be to blame. So here's some much more mundane things that may happen to someone that could result in nightmares. For example, spicy meals. If you're suffering from heartburn or having a hard time digesting your food, that struggle may slip into your dreams. So yes, that's right. Indigestion can lead to nightmares. Then there's just plain ordinary lack of sleep. Oftentimes, when people are sleep deprived, they have more nightmares. In those conditions, The body goes into REM sleep more quickly, so you're spending more time in the stage of sleep where the majority of dreams and nightmares occur. 
Also, sleep deprivation can increase your stress levels, which is another bad dream trigger. Now, then there is sleep apnea. People with sleep apnea, in which you stop breathing in your sleep, uh, usually outside of your awareness, report having nightmares, including such things as feeling like they're underwater and not being able to breathe. This could be your brain's way of manifesting the sleep disorder. So these are obviously some triggers for nightmares that are eminently treatable and correctable. Okay, if you've got a problem uh, with reflux and you avoid things that aggravate it, like spicy meals or eating too much food close to bedtime, that would alleviate one cause of nightmares. Uh, if you're not getting enough sleep, that's very easy to fix, uh, although people sometimes think it's not. It's a choice you make to stay up too late rather than to go to bed and get enough sleep. So if you just decide, well, no matter what I have to do and what I didn't get done today, I have to make the right choice to go to sleep early enough, then there again, that's a very simple, easy way to alleviate one cause of nightmares. <clears throat> and then sleep apnea, uh, many people, unfortunately, are quite strong candidates for a diagnosis of sleep apnea and are aware of this because their bed partner can readily relate incidents where they stop breathing during the night and then make a snorting, gasping, gulping sound when they resume breathing. And this is all interspersed with extremely loud snoring. And yet many patients will refuse to go get a sleep study to confirm the diagnosis of sleep apnea because they don't want to put up with the treatment for it which includes wearing uh, a mask around the nose or mouth uh, to keep air flowing through the airway to prevent the snoring and uh, prevent cessation of breathing. Uh, so in addition to that being a potential cause of nightmares, untreated sleep apnea also is an increased uh, risk uh, factor for heart attack and stroke. So again, if the sleep apnea were corrected, uh, Alleviating the incidence of nightmares uh, is just one of many benefits that um, treating sleep apnea can give you. Well, so what can you do yourself uh, to stop nightmares or with a doctor's or therapist's help? Uh, if the nightmares are recurring and they interfere with your day-to-day -day lifestyle, or if you are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, you should definitely seek help. Uh, from your doctor or your therapist, and there are some techniques that can alleviate the fear and fast-track you to a more peaceful slumber. <clears throat> this first one is called imagery reversal therapy. This was pioneered by Dr. Barry Krakow of the University of New Mexico's School of Medicine. The technique requires journaling your nightmares. Uh, upon review, you think of a different ending for the nightmare, and then you rewrite the journal entry with the new ending. And you read the updated journal entry before going to bed. When this practice is successful, 
which is about 70% of the time, the dream actually changes to what you wrote, giving you a happier ending. Now, I know this sounds a little bit hokey or corny and pseudoscience, but uh, honestly, this is a legitimate technique and it does work. Again, a success rate of about 70% is outstanding. Now, I think the most, uh, the best way to get this to work, when you're journaling your dreams, uh, nightmare or otherwise, because our memories of dreams are so fleeting, uh, they are the strongest right at the moment we wake up from the dream. And that from that point forward, the memories just sort of uh, quickly fade and become far less vivid. So the best thing is to keep a pad of paper and pen by your bedside so that immediately upon waking up from the nightmare, you can journal what happened in the nightmare in as much detail as you can recall right then and there. But that's not when you read through your journal entry and rewrite the uh, ending to a happier one. You do that some other time. And then read the journal entry with the alternative happy ending before you go to bed. And uh, you can't just expect this to be fixed in one night. This has to be a consistent effort, uh, night in, night out, reading the journal entry with the more positive ending to the dream. But if you stick with it and uh, keep trying it and practice this technique, it is quite likely that the nightmares will be fewer and further between. Now, for people who do have post-traumatic stress disorder or serious trauma-related nightmares, there are certain medications that have been prescribed for these patients. Uh, tricyclic antidepressants uh, like Elevil or Tofranil or Pamelor or Anaphranil or others. And then there are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs like Prozac or Zoloft or Celexa or Lexapro. Uh, these have also been prescribed. These medications will actually almost eliminate most REM sleep. Because of that, they lessen the amount of nightmares as well. However, there are some people for whom those medications and other psychiatric medications actually can make dreams more vivid, uh, whether that's normal dreams or stress dreams or nightmares occasionally. Uh, it's not a majority of patients who take them, but it's a fairly significant minority uh, that, again, the, uh, the dreams can be more vivid. Uh, so there are alternatives to using those medications to treat nightmares. There is a medication called prazosine, that's P-R-A-Z-O-S-I-N. This is a medication that is only approved for use in high blood pressure, uh, but somehow by serendipity or coincidence it was found that in post-traumatic stress disorder patients uh, who are military veterans uh, under the care of doctors in the VA system uh, in PTSD clinics, they discovered that prazosine could reduce the incidence 
of the nightmares. This is considered an off-label use, meaning the label, the prescribing instructions for prazosine, again, only allow it to be used for high blood pressure. But there is enough consensus and enough research reports about using prazosine to treat PTSD-related nightmares that this is now an acceptable use of the drug and you do have to watch for side effects such as decreased blood pressure and heart rate with dizziness and weakness but it usually only requires very low doses at bedtime to do the trick uh, and you know I have to admit uh, since I've follow uh, the psychiatric research literature and I've read about prazosine being used to treat combat vets PTSD related nightmares I have tried this uh, a few times in uh, civilians who suffer from bad nightmares and like anything else some of the time it works uh, sometimes it doesn't uh, there's few treatments in medicine who work for everybody you give it to uh, but this is definitely worth trying you ask your doctor about it uh, they may not be familiar with it uh, it might be that you'd have to ask uh, someone such as myself a specialist who might be more familiar with the idea of processing uh, to treat PTSD related nightmares or nightmares in general and then another way to alleviate nightmares is through cognitive behavioral therapy therapy sessions that force you to reconsider the cognition or the thought surrounding a nightmare uh, or thoughts such as I'm always going to have nightmares or my nightmares are always going to disrupt my life these types of negative thoughts uh, can actually make the nightmares more frequent and more severe if you can be taught how to reframe your mindset uh, this can alleviate the experience of the nightmares again the core principle behind cognitive behavioral therapy negative thought or cognition leads to negative outcome if you stop the negative thoughts and replace them with more positive ones uh, then you're less apt to get the uh, negative emotional output including nightmares All right well there you go so hopefully some of you who have recurring nightmares now have some clues as to how you may be able to alleviate them. Uh, don't forget that the imagery reversal therapy definitely is real. It does work. That's something you can do yourself. Obviously, medication, you would need a physician to prescribe that for you. And the cognitive behavioral therapy, you would need to see a therapist who uh, is trained uh, to render treatment with those techniques. Well, it is time to take a commercial break. We have more about sleep and nightmares when we come back from that break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, 
but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio. In the last segment, we were talking about nightmares and some things that you can do about them. Let's talk about another sleep-related symptom now. It's called sleep paralysis. And if you don't know what that means, uh, you will learn about it as we discuss this article But sleep paralysis is linked to genetics, anxiety, and stressful events. And we're going to explore how. Now, people who have experienced the strange phenomenon of sleep paralysis feel like they can't move their body when they're falling asleep or waking up. Or they may have hallucinations that there's a malevolent presence pressing down on them. Well, now a new study suggests the phenomenon may have a heritable cause. In the study, researchers asked a group of more than 800 twins and siblings whether they had experienced sleep paralysis. The results showed that genetics were partially to blame for the strange phenomenon. In addition, the people in the study who had anxiety, slept poorly, or had experienced stress in their lives, were more likely to have these nighttime bouts of paralysis. The findings shed some light on what is still quite a mysterious condition. The cause is still unknown, but it has something to do with disruption of the regular sleep cycle. The study was published online on February the 9th in the Journal of Sleep Research. Sleep paralysis often occurs during rapid eye movement or REM sleep when people are usually dreaming. Now, in REM sleep, the muscles are nearly paralyzed, possibly to prevent people from acting out their dreams, 
some people who suffer from sleep paralysis experience hallucinations of a terrifying figure pressing down on them and preventing them from moving. And this is where the myth of the incubus or the succubus comes from. Estimates of how many people experience the phenomenon vary widely. Some studies have found that just over 7% of people will experience the feeling at some point in their lives, where other studies suggest as many as 60% of people will. It is more common than you would actually expect, but I have to say my impression is that it is closer to the 7% than the 60%. Scientists don't really know what causes sleep paralysis and up until now have not been sure whether it's heritable or not. So to find out, researchers took this data from 862 twins, identical and non-identical, and other non-twin siblings between the ages of 22 and 32. The participants indicated on the survey whether they agreed with the statement Sometimes, when falling asleep or waking up from sleep, I experience a brief period during which I feel I am unable to move, even though I think I am awake and conscious of my surroundings. By comparing the responses of identical twins, who share almost all of their DNA, with those of non-identical twins or siblings who share about half of their DNA, the researchers found that genes accounted for more than 50% of the incidence of sleep paralysis. Pretty strong evidence that it is heritable. They also found that sleep paralysis was more common in people with anxiety and in those who weren't getting good sleep and in those who had had traumatic experiences such as an illness or a death in the family. And then researchers looked at individual genes that could be involved in sleep paralysis, something that had not been done before. Researchers looked to see which version of a gene called PER2, which is linked to daily cycles of wakefulness called circadian rhythms, which version of this gene the participants in the study had. They found that the people who had certain versions of this gene were more likely to have sleep paralysis, thus relating the phenomenon to something that regulates our circadian rhythms, our 24-hour clock, as it were. It's still a preliminary finding, but providing a general inkling that something to do with control of circadian rhythms is probably involved in sleep paralysis. Now, the study has some limitations for a behavioral genetics study. It was based on a relatively small number of participants and was limited to young adults. In addition, the findings don't prove that genetics or stressful factors cause the paralyzing experience only that the two are linked. Having anxiety could cause a person to experience sleep paralysis, and certainly having sleep paralysis could make someone more anxious 
Although hopefully after hearing this segment, you now no longer have to worry about the ancient myth and legend of either the incubus or the succubus visiting you during the night and pressing down upon you, preventing you from breathing. What the researchers have learned from the study is that sleep paralysis appears to be heritable and there appears to be some genes influencing sleep and wake patterns involved in the phenomenon of sleep paralysis. Now, uh, it was interesting to me that the article doesn't mention that sleep paralysis uh, is often uh, a clue that there may be a diagnosis of narcolepsy. So if you do experience this phenomenon on a fairly regular basis, you should go to your primary care doctor and have them order a sleep study to, or be referred directly to a sleep specialist to have a sleep study to investigate whether indeed you suffer from narcolepsy. Uh, not everybody with narcolepsy has the classic textbook symptoms of just falling asleep in mid-sentence. Uh, sometimes it's much more subtle than that, but sleep paralysis is certainly one of the clues. Let's move on to an article about using medication to quit smoking. Right now, I always talk about helping rid yourself of bad habits in the opening of the show, and certainly smoking is one of those. An article comes along that says, Gradual smoking cessation may be possible with nicotine addiction pill. And it says, A nicotine addiction pill can help smokers quit gradually when they can't go cold turkey, suggesting that it may be time to revisit practice guidelines that focus primarily on immediate, since, uh, immediate cessation of smoking. Smokers who took the pill, called Chantix, were much more likely to quit after cutting back on cigarettes than smokers who didn't use the drug. But doing it gradually allows a broader population of smokers to be helped who aren't willing to quit abruptly or set a quit date and it shows that people can quit without going cold turkey. Now, it's great to have this study come along because I have been advocating for years to ignore the advice that you must set a quit date, and no matter what, once you start the Chantix and you reach your quit date, you have to stop. Or, uh, same thing with using Wellbutrin or Zyban to help you quit smoking. This was always the recommendation, the dogma, uh, the thinking was that smokers were such creatures of habit that if you didn't set a date to make them stop, they would never quit. Well, I always felt that was wrong. Uh, my feeling was if you look at how the drugs work, whether it's Chantix or whether it's Welbutrin, Zyban, the same thing, you look at what they do. They help people decrease their cravings for nicotine and you let it happen naturally. It happens gradually the way the drugs work. The drugs don't suddenly cause you to come to one day and have a revelation that you can stop smoking. It's a gradual, subtle change. So why make someone quit suddenly if they can't? Let it happen gradually. So the study gives very strong support for changing clinical practice to include gradual reduction aided by medication. It's very important uh, the article reminds us that smoking is the leading cause of preventable death in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. 
Tobacco kills 1 in 10 people worldwide, according to the World Health Association. Quitting reduces the risks of heart attack, stroke, cancers of the mouth, throat, esophagus, and bladder. And 10 years after quitting, the risk of lung cancer drops by half. So what they did was uh, they randomly assigned 1,500 people to receive either Chantix or a placebo uh, for six months. Then they asked them to reduce their cigarette use by 50% by the fourth week and by 75% by the eighth week and then try to quit by week 12. In the last 10 weeks of treatment, weeks 15 to 24, the group taking the pill had higher abstinence rates than the group on the placebo. And this was held true even after treatment stopped. Then they followed them week 21 through 52. Almost a third who had taken the drug successfully avoided smoking, compared with less than 10% of those who didn't get the drug. So this is the first time to enroll a group of smokers in a study who were not traditionally in clinical trials because they're not ready to quit right then and there. Offering compelling evidence that gradual reduction should be considered to facilitate quitting. Um, even so, the majority failed to quit, uh, but unfortunately that's par for the course in smoking cessation treatment trials. Uh, other treatments like the patches and gum for nicotine replacement can help people cut back gradually. So now we know Chantix can be used in the same way to help smokers quit and do so gradually. Now, the side effects of Chantix are pretty legendary. Nausea, abnormal dreams or nightmares, insomnia, and, uh, and there's also warnings about suicidal thinking and erratic behavior, uh, a, a black box warning about this type of thing. But uh, on the other hand, people with a history of depression or anxiety, suicidal behavior, panic attacks, PTSD, schizophrenia, or psychosis were excluded from the study which is published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. But we know from other uh, unrelated research that even people with those psychiatric disorders, as long as they're stable, they can take Chantix safely to quit smoking. Well, time to wrap up to tonight's show. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we meet again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.